0: We're continuing on through the book of Romans. And this morning we'll look at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. And there's an insert provided for you, so if that helps you follow along, you can take that out. Romans three twenty-one to twenty-six, but since it provides a transition here, I'll begin at verse twenty so we get just a little bit of context. This is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative Word. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our God and Father, as your word goes forth this morning like the seed of a sower, we pray that Satan will not take away what we hear. We also ask that Your Word will take root in our hearts. May we not fall away when tribulation or persecution comes. Moreover, don't let Your Word be choked out due to the cares of the world or the deceitfulness of riches or the desire for other things so that it fails to produce fruit in our lives. Rather, we plead with You that we will hear Your Word, that we will accept Your Word so that it will yield much fruit in our lives. Thirtyfold, sixtyfold, even a hundredfold if Your blessing would accompany the proclamation of Your Word, which is our heart's desire and our prayer. So we boldly ask this morning for Your blessing. And we pray for it boldly because we do not ask for it in our name, but we pray boldly because we ask for it in the strong name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, Amen. You may be seated. The Bible scholar C.E.B. Cranfield called Romans 3:21 to 26 the center and heart of the book of Romans. And the Bible commentator Leon Morris suggests that these verses may quote possibly be the most important single paragraph ever written. That's quite a statement, isn't it? The reason for such an audacious claim is that this paragraph explains how guilty sinners can ever hope to stand in the presence of a holy God on the day of judgment. The technical term that we're talking about this morning is justification. Another one of those big terms. Again, I've told you this before. You can learn big terms. Delicatessen is a big term. Justification is a big term. I have this in your notes. It is the opposite of condemnation. So on the day of judgment, all of us will stand in the presence of God. We we will give an account of our lives. We will give an account of our thoughts, of our words, of our deeds, things we did that we should not have done, things that we didn't do that we should have done. And we will either be condemned or justified this is the simplest definition i can think of justification is the legal declaration that a person is righteous the legal declaration that a person is righteous now right at this point we should say we have an absolutely huge problem The problem is we are not righteous. What did we see back in 3.10? As it is written, none is righteous. And in case anyone would say to the Apostle Paul, no one, he goes on he says, no, not one. There's the problem. And what did we see in verse 20? For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. We're not righteous. So we will not be declared justified in His sight because we are sinners. So there's our problem. And this is what makes the transition in verse 21 so glorious. But now, there's a different kind of righteousness. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So Paul is saying, but now there's a way of being righteous apart from obedience to the law, which is good news because none of us obeyed the law. Although the law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, testify to this righteousness that God would bring. So the crucial question that this paragraph answers is, how can we obtain this righteousness from God? That's the question. How can we obtain this righteousness from God that comes apart from the law because we need it forever ever going to be justified before God? And we can answer this question with three points. Number one, the righteousness of God is by grace alone. Number two, the righteousness of God is by faith alone. And number three, the righteousness of God is by Christ alone. And if you've been at this church for any period of time, you've heard me say again and again and again, we are justified, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And you say, well, why do you say that over and over? Can't you think of anything else to say? I want it to be second nature to you. I really do. I want it to be ingrained from the top of your head to the sole of your feet that whenever you think about standing before God, if someone just mentions the Judgment Day that you just instinctively think, my only hope is grace alone, faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. I don't want you to even hesitate to answer that question. That's our only hope. God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. So those are our three points. So first of all, the righteousness of God is by grace alone. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His what? Tell me. Grace Grace as a gift. That's what we read in the ESV. So what, what is grace? Unmerited favor. It's unmerited favor. And I can make this so simple that even the children can understand it's a gift. That's what the ESV says. It's We are justified by His grace as a gift. Other translations say we are justified freely by His grace. In other words, it doesn't cost us anything. So this justification... This righteousness from God didn't cost us anything. It's a gift. It's free. Now, it's not cheap grace, though. As we'll see in the third point, it doesn't cost us anything, but it costs God a lot. But in the meantime, what I want you to see is that this is unique to Christianity. All the other religions in the world are basically merit-based performance based you have to work really 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 hard and maybe just maybe god will let you into heaven but christianity is unique in talking about we are saved by grace alone maybe to help us appreciate it, we can compare it to hinduism A number of years ago the grand rapids press ran this story Conversion to Hindu faith tortuous. This is what the article stated in part. A West German businessman has completed his conversion to the Hindu faith by piercing himself through the cheeks with a quarter inch thick four foot long steel rod and pulling a chariot for two miles by ropes attached to his back and chest by steel hooks. Others walk through 20-foot-long pits of fire, don shoes with soles made of nails, or hang in the air, spread eagle, from hooks embedded in their backs. But what do we read in Ephesians 2, 8, 9? For by grace... You have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works. So we read it here in Romans, it's by grace as a gift. We read that in Ephesians, it is by grace alone. Now that's really redundant to say that. By grace alone. Because if grace isn't alone, it's not grace. This is what Paul says in Romans 11.6, he says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. That's very important. So if we are saved by grace plus anything, it's no longer grace. Because it's no longer a gift. Now this month we have a lot of birthdays coming up. My mother has a birthday coming up this month, and Zach has a birthday coming up, and Will has a birthday coming up. And so there's a lot of birthdays coming up this month, but yeah, Jimmy, I don't want to leave anybody out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyways, imagine zacky has got a birthday coming up. And we give him a present. I shouldn't say this will be distracted now, thinking about what he wants for his birthday. But imagine his birthday comes up and we give him a present as a gift and he's oh thank you dad and i say that'll be (laughs) five (laughs) dollars it's it's no longer a gift it's no longer grace so to say we're saved by grace alone really is redundant but we have to say it because so many think that it's yes god has to be gracious but don't we have to at least do something not for justification it's all of grace So we want to be really clear. The righteousness of God is by grace alone. And number two, the righteousness of God is through faith alone. And you can see that that is really emphasized in this passage. 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to receive by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So he begins this paragraph by saying, you receive this righteousness by faith. Right in the middle of this paragraph, he says it's received by faith. Right at the end of this paragraph, he says it's by faith. Now, I'm not the greatest scholar in the world, but as I read this, I think Paul is trying to emphasize the fact that this righteousness comes to us by faith. So even if we're a little slow... We can see that we need faith. Romans 3.28 It's like Paul is writing and saying, in case you missed it, let me repeat myself. <laughs> for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And when Martin Luther translated Romans 3.28, he translated it this way, for we hold that one is justified by faith alone apart from from works of the law. Now, the word alone is not in the Greek, but the idea is clearly present there. That's why it's contrasted with works. We're justified by faith, not by works of the law. That's a way of emphasizing it is by faith alone. And again, we have to emphasize faith alone because so many people want to think, well, yes, we have to believe in Christ, but... Don't we also have to work at least a little bit? Not for justification. Not to be accepted by God. Now, another definition. I'm giving you lots of definitions this morning. Another definition of faith. And this is important so that we clearly understand what it is. Faith is trust. This morning, you all came in and you sat down in the chair. I didn't see any of you kind of hesitate. You know, you sat down in the chair because you trusted this chair is going to hold me. It's a good, sturdy, strong chair. You sat down and you trusted that it would hold you up. You had confidence that the chair would hold you up. So when we say we're saved by faith alone, by trusting in Jesus Christ, by being confident that what He has done for us on the cross is sufficient. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. Faith is not risky gambling. That's not faith. Faith is not when you go up to the, you know, I don't, I don't know, slot machine. You put your quarter in, pull the lever. I hope I win. That's not faith. And sometimes Christianity is presented like that. The bumper sticker: Try Jesus. That's not faith. Try Jesus because maybe, just maybe, he can make a difference in your life. And sometimes we just present the Christian life as, you know, taking a gamble. You know, I've heard people say, even if it turns out in the end that there's no heaven, it's still worth it because the Christian life is the best life. It's 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 like saying we're just we're taking this gamble and and we're hoping that it's that it's the best life. That is not faith. Faith is trust. Faith is confidence i'm going to look to jesus christ i'm going to trust him and what he did for me and i am saved i believe it not that there's not some wavering here or there we we do have that maybe even like you sit down in a chair occasionally You're like okay this one seems a little wobbly but it's faith it's it's trust and think of it this way if it's just taking a risk does that honor god it doesn't honor god reading John Piper's latest book, A Peculiar Glory. And he talks about how unwarranted trust is no honor to the trusted one. And he gives this example. It's a simple example, and I think it it helps to make the point. He says, Suppose you meet a man on the street whom you do not recognize, and he gives you a bag with $50,000 in cash and asked you to deposit it in the bank for him. Yeah, I'll deposit it for you. (laughs) He says that his account number is in the bag. You are surprised because you do not know him at all. You ask, why do you trust me with this? Suppose he says, no reason. I'm just taking a risk. That is the effect of that, or excuse me, what is the effect of that faith in you? Does it honor you? No, it does not. It shows the man is a fool. But suppose he says, I know that you don't know me, but I work in the same building you do. And I have watched you closely for the last year. I have seen your integrity in a dozen ways. I have spoken to people who know you. The reason I am trusting you with this money is that I have good reason to believe you are honest and reliable. And then he asked this question, Now, what is the effect of that faith? And he says, It truly honors you. Why? Because it is based on real evidence that you are honorable. And I think that's so important. God is not honored by a blind leap in the dark, by us just taking a chance. He's honored when we say, I trust you, I'm confident in you because I know who you are. Now here's the crucial question we need to ask. Where does this faith come from? And we can stay right in the book of Romans. Romans 10.17 So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. This is a great passage for preachers. I love this passage because I want you to be filled with faith. And it says, where does faith come from? And it tells us. It comes from hearing. And hearing through the Word of Christ. Now the Word of Christ, I won't get into all the technical grammar of the genitive in the Greek, but there's two possibilities. It comes through hearing the Word about Christ when we read the Bible. Or it could be from hearing Christ's Word. In other words, hearing Christ speak. And I think that's how we should understand it. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. This is practically how it works. God's message goes forth. His Word is proclaimed. And you don't just hear the Word of a man. You don't just hear the pastor behind the pulpit, but you actually hear Jesus Christ speaking to you through His Word. In John 10, Jesus I am the Good Shepherd. The sheep know Me, and My sheep hear My voice. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul told the believers there that they accepted the Word as it actually is. The Word of God and not just the Word of Man. I think that's absolutely fascinating. And hopefully all of us have had that experience. We listen to a message, and yes, it doesn't matter who the man is, it could be anybody, someone on the radio, maybe we never even heard their name before, but we listen to what they said, and God spoke to us. It was clear as day. And when God speaks to you, guess what? You believe. You believe. You say, I'm trusting Him. You say, really? Trusting Him? Yes, I have confidence in Jesus Christ. And people say, well, how can you do that? Because I heard His voice. I heard His voice. And it really is powerful. Paul Washer tells a great story. He mentions that there was a man struggling with assurance of salvation. And he said, I didn't want to just give him you know, man's assurance that he saved. I wanted God Himself to bring him assurance. Because if God would bring him assurance, he would never be shaken. He would know I'm saved. So he tells the story. They were going through a number of passages in Scripture, and, and then they came to John three sixteen. If I remember the story correctly, you know, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And and Paul Washer told the man. He said he said read that verse, and the man said, I'm born again. And Paul Washer said, how do you know? And he said, haven't you ever read this verse? <laughs> In other words, he, he read Scripture. God spoke to him and assured him there was no doubt. Because the Word convinces people because God speaks to us through His Word and it removes all doubt. So the righteousness of God is by grace alone it's by faith alone. And number three, the righteousness of God is in Christ alone. And here, Paul is thinking especially of the cross. And of course, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you know that the cross has been mocked for a long time. In Corinthians, 1 Corinthians one eighteen, Paul says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... It's power of God. In our own day, the cross has been called divine child abuse. It's mocked. What kind of God would send His own Son to die on a cross for other people? So on our own day, it's been mocked. But the cross is crucial. It's necessary for at least three reasons. There are many other reasons. Here's another book by John Piper. Passion of Jesus Christ. The subtitle is 50 reasons why He came to die. Now, we don't have time to go through the 50 reasons why He came to die, but let me give you three. And these are in your outline if they're helpful. The first reason why we need the cross is because another big word, propitiation. Say that ten times real fast. Propitiation. It's a great word. Romans... 3.23, God put Christ forward as a propitiation by His blood. Other translations say sacrifice of atonement. Other people want to translate it mercy seat. Um, Some people actually are bothered by this word propitiation. I forgot to give you the definition, didn't I? (laughs) Propitiation means the turning aside of God's wrath. God's anger, that's propitiation. Turning aside of God's anger. And they don't like the picture because it's of an angry God who looks like the pagan gods of old who needed to be appeased with, you know, fruit baskets on the altar or even sacrificing people's own children so that their anger could be appeased and the gods would leave them alone. So many people are bothered by this idea of God being angry, so there's other ways to understand this. And let me say there are good arguments on the other sides. But I think John Stott really nailed it when he said this. The main reason these options, these other options, apart from propitiation, are not satisfactory and a reference to propitiation seems necessary is the context. <laughs> context, context context. In these verses, Paul is describing God's solution to the human predicament, which is not only sin, but God's wrath upon sin. So can I remind you of the context? The main section began in Romans one eighteen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. And then in 2.5, Paul again talks about wrath. But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And in 3.5, he talks about God's wrath again. So the context is very important. Right at the beginning of the letter, we saw, if you recall, Paul said he was eager to preach the Gospel. And then he gave three reasons. He said, eager to preach the Gospel because I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, because it's the power of God unto salvation, because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And then he began his first major section by saying God's wrath is revealed against men who are wicked. And now he says... But there's a righteousness of God available by grace alone, through faith alone, because of the cross. And on the cross, God's anger is turned away from us and it's directed toward Jesus Christ who is punished for our sin. So that's very important to understand. God's anger is not directed towards us. So the cross provides a propitiation. It also provides redemption which is the purchasing of God's people. Redemption, the purchasing of God's people. Verse 23, "...for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus." This is a beautiful word. We find it all throughout the Bible. This is a commercial term. It's borrowed from the marketplace It was used in the Old Testament of slaves who were purchased in order to be set free. It's described of Israel who was redeemed out of Egypt because they were slaves. And it was talked about Israel who was redeemed out of Babylon because they were taken captive. God brought them back into the land. So we are redeemed. God paid the price for our salvation. In Mark 10.45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And then in Acts 20.28, Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders and he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. And Pastor Tom said it a little earlier during the confession time. We were bought with a price. We are not our own. We were redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So the cross provides propitiation, the turning side of God's wrath, redemption, the purchasing of God's people, and then demonstration... Which is the showing of God's justice or righteousness. And this is, this is important. Right at the, in the middle of verse 25, Paul says this, talking about the cross, was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So in the past, God just looked over sin, he just passed it over, And what would you say of a judge who just looked the other way towards someone who was guilty and said, "Ah, we're just going to let him go"? Murderer, rapist, we're we're just just going to let him go. What would we think of that judge? Not Not much. Certainly not just. Certainly not a righteous judge. God could be accused of that. If God doesn't punish sin, He may be loving. He may be merciful. But He's not just. He's not holy. He's not righteous. So it, verse 26, again, the cross was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be, and I love this phrase, just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is one of the most beautiful descriptions of God in the whole Bible. Because of the cross... God can be just and the justifier at the same time. Because of the cross, God is just. He punishes sin. He punished Jesus for our sin. And because of the cross, He can be justifier. He can forgive us for our sins through our faith in Christ. So because of the cross, the dilemma, is God going to be forgiving or is God going to be just? Because of the cross, God is both he's forgiving, he's just, he's gracious, and he's holy at the same time. His integrity cannot be called into question. And this is so important because in our culture, people think God just forgives. That's what God does, right? Right? To err as human, to forgive divine, right? That's God's job. My job is to sin. My job is to mess up. God's job is to forgive. That's that's what he does. But you know what a great follow up question would be? If you had a chance to talk to someone honestly about forgiveness, what does it cost God to forgive you? Hmm. You know what many people will say? Well, it doesn't cost him anything. Why does it have to cost him anything? He can just forgive me. He can't just forgive you He can't just let the sentence go and again maybe use the illustration of a judge He can't just let the person off the hook then he wouldn't be righteous he wouldn't be holy what did it cost god to forgive you it cost him the life of his one and only son on the cross and when we understand that god is gracious to us because of what Jesus did, then we understand that this is no cheap grace. costs God a lot, even though it's a gift offered freely to me. So here we have it, that we are justified, we are saved, we are declared righteous by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone and what He did on the cross on our behalf. Now, why did God design it this way? God is an omniscient God. He knows all things. He's a genius. He he could have devised salvation so many other ways. Why this way? Have you ever asked that question? Why this way? I remember years asking asking this question, and I was going through Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which says, For we are saved by grace, or excuse me, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that anyone should what? Boast. Boast. So that anyone should boast. And then notice what we have in this passage right here, and we don't have time for it this morning, but Paul is going to answer three objections. And the first one is found in 27. What then becomes of our, our boasting? What do we have to brag about? We used to be able to brag that we were Jews, the Hebrew of Hebrews, that Abraham was our father. What do we have to brag about now? What do we have to boast about now? What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No. But by the law of faith. Why grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Because we are left without any boasting at all. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. We all kneel there and we are all humble. There is absolutely no room whatsoever for pride in our salvation. Because we didn't contribute anything to our salvation. Quote John Stott once more, except the sin from which we needed to be saved. God's the one who's gracious. God's the one who even gives us faith as a gift and provides Christ to provide for our redemption. Why this way? Let me give you one more sola. (laughs) we got grace alone, faith alone, through Jesus Christ alone. What's the last one? to the glory of God alone. That's why it's designed this way. Because then God gets all the glory. So if you're sitting there this morning and you say, well, I want to boast, then go ahead and do this. Boast in the Lord. Paul said, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for this great salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. And Father, I want to pray that as our understanding of this great salvation, this great justification, this righteousness as a gift from You, as it penetrates our hearts, I pray that it would result in great humility and great boasting in You and in the cross. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.